Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. We all come from somewhere. When we start talking with each other, we find out more often than not, there's a lot we have in common. When you're a kid, finding that connection means a lot, whether it was with a friend at school or the kid next door, or even when you sat down to watch television. For more than 40 years, Sesame Street connected kids to a world that felt comfortable and friendly. And our next guest was part of what made that show so good. Sonia Manzano played Maria for 44 years until her retirement from Sesame Street last year. She's an author and has written children's books and a memoir, Becoming Maria, Love and Chaos in the South Bronx. She'll be in Hartford later to speak at the village's Girl Within Luncheon that will benefit programs to help at-risk girls and women. Sonia joins us today from NPR Studios in Midtown Manhattan. Sonia, welcome to Where We Live. Well, thank you. It's nice to be here talking to you. It's interesting to hear your voice after watching Sesame Street all those years ago. Do you feel that when you meet people that they feel like they know you? They feel like they know me. It's always my voice that it's a giveaway in case they're not sure. And uh, then they immediately start to cry. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, I'm sure, uh, but in a good way, I think that somehow I'm a catalyst and all of a sudden they're back on their mother's laps or their Mm. whoever was taking care of them when they watched Sesame Street and they were children. So you must have been giving lots of hugs through the years. Lots of hugs, lots of kisses. As a matter of fact, people meet me and the first thing they want to do is give me a hug. It's been a year now since you announced your retirement. Um, First off, why did you retire and and what's life been like for you now? Well, the short answer is uh, 44 years was long enough for me to wait for Oscar the Grouch to propose. (laughs) (laughs) No, really. I felt that I sort of had uh, been on the show long enough and I wanted to do other things. And I wanted to pursue a writing career. And I started doing that while I was on Sesame Street, uh, writing picture books and I thought that I wanted to devote more time to it. Plus, there was less airtime. When we started the show, it was an, uh, an hour show. There were 160 shows a year. Now it's like 22 shows. And as the Muppet cast got bigger and the human cast got bigger, there was less time for each individual cast member. So it wasn't like I was working all the time on the show. Uh, so it was a you know a nice little segue out I think into my writing career now. Do you miss it? Not at all, actually. I miss my friends, but uh, I I must say that I I don't miss the actual day to day or you know once a week appearances that I was uh, uh, participating in. So you had a very high profile job. Again, people would see you. They felt like they knew you. I wanted to talk about your memoir. Um, You write about your childhood in in the South Bronx, um, something you described as being a very confusing time in your life. For those of our listeners who haven't read your book, um, tell us a little bit about the process behind deciding to write it and what you focused on. Well, I I was raised, uh, I'm Puerto Rican, I was raised in the 50s in the South Bronx and my in a household that was ruled by domestic violence. And I think that's a reason that the village wants me to come and speak to them because they are 
uh, trying to help children that are probably in the very same situation that I was in. And uh, the, the connection to Sesame Street is that I, I watched a lot of television as a kid, and I found comfort in the order of shows like Leave It to Beaver and Father Knows Best and all of those shows that you can watch on uh, on TV land today. And uh, I think I grew up to sort of be what I needed to see myself on television. I always thought of my job as being Maria on Sesame Street as providing children with an, an hour of comfort or an hour of sanity. And I... I prevailed in that in that idea because many adults have come up to me and said things like my mother was schizophrenic and one hour of watching you gave me some relief or and and other uh, revealing statements like that and kids that lived very middle class white childhoods in the Midwest have said to me, you were the only, you were the first Latina that I ever met or that I ever knew. And uh, I think that I uh, enrich their lives as well. When you were watching Leave it to Beaver, did you feel, I mean, obviously uh, no character on that show looked like you. So how did you, did you ever feel like there was a connection? It's interesting to me that even though there was uh, no one who looked like me or sounded like me on television and I and I felt invisible and I indeed used to wonder how I was going to contribute to this society that was absolutely blind to me and the the plight of Puerto Ricans at at, at that time actually all Latins there were no people of color at all mm-hmm. uh, on, on television but I think that children are hopeful naturally hopeful and they 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 find ways of making sense of the world around them for example here's a silly example you we, we were all at school told many stories about santa claus coming down the chimney and leaving presents now we're all living in a tenement right <laughs> <laughs> so so nobody bothers to explain anything to us but i remember talking to my friends and deciding that Santa Claus magically broke the window, came in, left the presents. Any presents he forgot, he would leave at your aunt's house, and then he would magically (laughs) close the window. So I think that kids find ways in their fantasies of adjusting and, and, and seeing hope for themselves. So you really did have quite an imagination that you were able to yes, use I later did. on. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I did, and and uh, and I th- I think th- I think that children naturally do that. The earlier you you uh, you can intervene, I think the uh, better off uh, they will be. Tell me about um, your childhood at home. Your father was an alcoholic. You mentioned earlier um, there was domestic violence in your house. What, what was that like for you growing up? Well, it was very confusing, a very chaotic. Uh, we would uh, run away. My mother would pack us up and we'd run away. And and then uh, we, we'd find we couldn't make ends meet. She worked as a seamstress in a factory. So then we would move uh, back in with my father and there would be a honeymoon period. And then it would start all over again. Uh, so there was a lot of disruption, a lot of school changes of school. Uh, you, you couldn't prepare for a test because you never knew 
if something was going to uh, the evening was going to end up in a in a violent situation. And the, and the thing that was that's interesting too is that there was also a lot of joy and love, and that's that's the component that uh, uh, that children have trouble with because it's two things happening at the same time. I loved Christmas because we would have a tradition of musicians coming over and playing their guitars and singing old uh, aguinaldos, which are Puerto Rican kind of Christmas carols. And uh, that was joyous. And I... uh, and we had fun. My mother was very funny and and humorous at at the same time. So there were. It was very much sort of like Frank McCourt's book Angela's Ashes, mm-hmm. where you're laughing out loud at the most terrible stories. Uh, and uh, it's something that people kids have to reconcile. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. I'm talking with Sonia Manzano. She's a longtime Sesame Street actress and author. She retired from the show last year, and she wrote a memoir, Becoming Maria, Love and Chaos in the South Bronx. She's joining us today from NPR Studios in Midtown Manhattan. She'll be in Hartford later to speak at the nonprofit The Village at a, at a luncheon, The Girl Within. It's going to benefit programs for at-risk girls and women. Now, um, um, Sonia, I've almost called you Maria. Sonia, um, you mentioned that, um, you know, looking back as a child, you know, there was lots of joy and love that you remember, even though there were tumultuous times as well. When you decided to write a memoir and you were thinking back to your childhood, were there there moments that you had blocked out that you were recalling, you know, what happened between um, your parents and, and things that you witnessed? Well, I I I had to struggle with it gave me the opportunity to struggle with conflicting feelings and one of them was that my parents would talk about the horrible poverty that they had escaped Puerto Rico in the 40s and then uh, they're talking about them about it would make them nostalgic for the island and they'd get their guitars out and start singing so I'm thinking which is it was it a good place or a bad place and they would also uh talk about uh people who were so poor they would have if they had a wound they would keep reinfecting their wound so they would continue to be on the dole so they could support their families and they would laugh at that and I was I would hear them and say, that's not funny. Why are you laughing? And I realize now that they laughed in direct proportion to their misery there. But it was was instances like that that I had to sort of come to the very conclusion that I just related to you, that uh, people who were raised in these harsh environments often are harsh themselves. Mm. So uh, later on, you know, you I read that you went to Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh. Uh, tell me about the path from the South Bronx to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I know it was really—it's like going to Planet X or something. <laughs> it was—I I was really quite provincial. Never been out of the Bronx, and I was—you know—I met all students from all over the the uh, the uh, the country. And I want to say that I, this was 1968, I guess, that I went to Carnegie Mellon University. Society was on my side. It was the civil rights movement. President Johnson was going to create the Great Society. Uh, they wanted to diversify universities. They wanted to give people like me uh, opportunities. It's the exact opposite of America now. 
it, it was then. It was a kind pl- uh, America was kind, idealistic, and hopeful. Mm-hmm. Now it's uh, you know the the exact opposite. So I really feel for young people who are trying to to find their way in such an unsympathetic harsh a society that we live in now. And as uh, you uh, intimated, yes, it was very, I had to really uh, come to grips with the being in Pittsburgh. <laughs> so I, I found the nearest ghetto. I went to Homewood. <laughs> I know in Homewood. Yeah. Oh, do you know Homewood? Yeah, I went, oh, to, I went you... to school at Duquesne University, so I, oh, I know the... Pittsburgh well. <laughs> well, there you go. Well, the, well, I went to Homewood, and and <laughs> you know, and I said, wait a minute, how could this be a ghetto? People live in houses, and they have barbecues, and and uh, as opposed to tenement buildings. So um, that's where I I went to find some comfort there. That that's an indication about how foreign the whole experience was for me. Did you feel um, you mentioned it was a it's a different time uh, in 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 sixty uh, eight you felt like you were welcomed at CMU and the student body you know that you were there you didn't face any type of discrimination there. No, not at all. Okay. And I think it was because everybody was was an artist and uh, you know acting was what we were all trying to be excel at and uh, so I certainly didn't feel any uh, discrimination or uh, or anything like that I certainly had a lot of trouble uh, because I with the schoolwork with the academic part of it because my early education in the South Bronx was so inferior. I was like an A student in the South Bronx and a C student uh, every place else. I thought, how could I be so smart in the Bronx and so stupid in Manhattan? Mm -hmm. But (laughs) that was the only trouble I had uh, was academically. Socially, I was very much accepted. I'm speaking with Sonia Manzano. She was on Sesame Street for 44 years as Maria. Her memoir is called Becoming Maria, Love and Chaos in the South Bronx. When we come back from the break, we're going to hear more about how she got started on Sesame Street and what she thinks her legacy is today. This is where we live. Good enough for me. C is for cookie. That's good enough for me. C is for cookie. That's good enough for me. Oh, cookie, cookie, cookie starts with C. You know what? A round cookie with one bite out of it looks like a C. A round donut with one bite out of it also looks like a C. But it is not as good as a cookie. The moon sometimes looks like a C, but you can't eat that. So, C is for cookie. That's good enough for me. Yeah, C is for cookie. That's good enough for me. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. I'm talking with Sonia Manzano, a longtime actress on Sesame Street. She was Maria for 44 years. She's an author of children's books and a memoir, Becoming Maria, Love and Chaos in the South Bronx. She joins us today from NPR studios in Midtown Manhattan. Let's take a listen back to some moments from Sonia's time on Sesame Street. Take it from us and don't make a fuss. We want you in the know. So just say hola. Come on, say hola. Say hola. Instead of hello. Hey, what's going on? Whoa, 
are you doing, Maria? Oscar, I hope you're satisfied. You had to start all that stuff about Santa and tiny chimneys, and you've upset Big Bird so much he's gone. Well, I didn't know he'd do anything dumb like that. I was only teasing him. Teasing him? Yeah. Telling him that Santa's not gonna bring anybody any presents because he can't get down a tiny chimney? Now, you call that teasing? Well, uh, he'll come back. He's part homing pigeon. We are here today to celebrate the marriage of Maria and Luis. On second thought, it's altogether possible I've made a major error. My hands are cold, my forehead's hot. It's either love or terror. I guess somewhere there's somebody who thinks a wedding's fun. But if I were in five stories high, I'd run. Look at her. Isn't he That's Maria on Sesame Street, played by Sonia Manzano. I'm speaking with her today from uh, the studios of NPR in Midtown Manhattan. When you listen back to those clips, uh, Sonia, I mean, is it hard for you to not sit there and smile? This is this oh, is... I'm I'm <laughs> grinning ear to ear. Are you kidding? It's I'm glad you played uh, the song. All I it was the first. Uh, uh, lyric that I wrote when I became a writer for Sesame Street and it's a takeoff of Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers in the great movie Top Hat and uh, as I said I watched a lot of television as a child and I was absolutely obsessed with Fred Astaire Ginger Roger movies and so I grew up and Sesame Street gave me an opportunity to make believe I was uh, in that world I think that's interesting and also the Christmas special mm-hmm. where I'm yelling at Oscar the Grouch actually has a segment where children are asked how do they think Santa Claus visits them in in mm-hmm. uh, an urban environment, mm-hmm. which is exactly the fantasies that I used to fool, fool around with when I was a kid. So you know, the, I was it was a great fit. <laughs> <laughs> now, when you were at CMU, that's when you first saw Sesame Street. I did. I walked into the student union, and there was uh, on the television a very young, very bald James Earl Jones reciting the alphabet in that wonderfully deliberate manner of his A, B. And uh, I thought I was watching a show that taught lip reading. It was so <laughs> amazing and so compelling. And then there was a Wanda the Witch animation, which it was I think it was sung by Gracie Slick of the Jefferson Airplane. And then they cut to the street, and that's uh, that's what nailed it for me when I saw Susan and Gordon. As I said, there were no black people on television in 1969, and, they, and certainly not joyous, warm, friendly ones. Talking to me from environments that looked very much like many of the places I had been raised in. And that was the connection seeing that street. Yeah, it was seeing that that street, the construction doors, uh, the tenement doors, uh, the fire hydrant. I said, what's my fire hydrant doing on television? (laughs) I I know that place. Uh, You know, there were sort of all the icons of Puerto Ricanness. It reminded me of West Side Story, the fire escape in West Side Story, and uh, uh, that movie also uh, another work of art that really made a a huge impression on me, Uh, you know, like the set of Sesame Street, the set of West Side Story, where where banal things that were in your life were exalted to be Mm -hmm. beautiful works of art, and I think Sesame Street did that with the inner city uh, set. So how did you get on Sesame Street? Tell us about that process. 
I think the most important things happen to you when you're not paying attention. I was do I was in Godspell and uh, which is a Broadway hit. Uh, after it was off Broadway, and that came from we did that at school at Carnegie Mellon University. And Sesame Street was one of my first auditions. They wanted to. Um, expand the cast because Latinos on the West Coast demanded that there be Latino role models as there were uh, role models for the African-American children in Susan and Gordon. So I just, uh, you know, went into an audition with John Stone, a mentor and creator of the show. And this was at a time when one person could make a creative decision. (laughs) So, and uh, those of uh, people who are listening who are in show, or in any business, I think it takes a committee to do anything anything these days. But uh, I just met, yes, a consultant or, you know, uh, as as you know, it slows up the process quite a bit. But he was uh, a visionary and uh, obviously, because he cast me right away, and I didn't see anyone else. Mm-hmm. And I, I, uh, I did a sorting song where there were two right answers, and I was impressed by that. Um, uh, and because already I'm thinking, oh, wow, this is really, you know, they're not telling kids it's this, or this is what you should know, or this is the right way. They were immediately by presenting a problem to be solved that had two right answers depending on your point of view mm. gave the sh- the show gravitas i think and profundity and then i had to tell a scary story and i had a lot of those <laughs> so uh, 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 i was in there i was successful now, you said earlier that um, you also wrote for Sesame Street, and I was listening back to an interview that you did for WNYC, which I just loved, because you were interviewing the other Sonia from the South Bronx, Supreme Court Justice Sonia Sotomayor. Yes, yeah, that was really thrilling. I'm such an admirer of hers. And you were talking to her um, in this interview about how growing up, you never thought about how you could become a writer. And then, you know, fast forward you got on to Sesame Street, and then your role changed. I mean, you were also you were in front of the camera, but you had so much of a, a role in how the show was shaped and the, and the dialogue between the characters and the kids watching at home. Yeah, that was exciting. I was able to actually write for Sonia Sotomayor when she uh, uh, came on the show. And I think maybe I would have been a writer earlier if it had been presented to me as an option. Mm -hmm. To me, writing as a kid was something like intellectuals did and certainly not somebody like me. Mm -hmm. And... uh, uh, it was when Dulcie Singer, the producer of the show at that time, actually said to me, why don't you try writing some of these shows? I was always uh, being um, – I had questions about the Hispanic content of the show, and I would say, you should do this and you should do this. And then she finally said, why don't you try writing some of this stuff yourself? And that was remarkable. Uh, once again, that was a time when uh, people with vision were allowed to proceed, and and uh, she uh, she kind of threw it back in my lap, and that's how I started writing. So many kids are just not exposed to the possibilities, so they go for the obvious. They want to be Beyonce, or they want to be LeBron James. <laughs> you know, the, the what's right in front of them. They don't see the the somebody has to write for them somebody's behind the scenes and they gave me that opportunity 
You obviously had spent a long time um, at Sesame Street. Any favorite moments from the show? I think I have to think it was when Stevie Wonder came on and did Superstition, the great song of the 70s. And he, his whole band came on and the whole studio was rocking out to that song. And everybody was on the same page. White people, black people, young people, old people, little kids, older kids, parents. It was just a... a, a a wonderful, uh, idealistic moment. I remember that well, and I, I was most proud to be part of the show when we did uh, Goodbye, Mr. Hooper, when Will mm-hmm. Lee died, the actor who played Mr. Hooper, and we had to explain his his absence. That was a wonderful moment. Tony Bennett um, was wonderful because... Uh, uh, he was famous when I was born. And Lena Horne. Lena mm-hmm. Horne, I walk in, she's singing It's Not Easy Being Green with Kermit the Frog. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm thinking, is she singing about what I think she's singing about? <laughs> and I wasn't a writer then, so I wasn't in the uh, the machinations. Mm-hmm. I wasn't aware of that kind of working on several levels. And, uh, of course, she was singing about race and and. You know, if if you saw that, if that was in your life, if that was something you thought about, that's what you saw in that song. Mm-hmm. That was a, a real high moment for me, mm-hmm. I think. You mentioned when you were a, a kid and talking about when you lived in a tenement, thinking about how Santa Claus would come into your home when there was no uh, you know, chimney going into your fireplace, going right into your uh, apartment, and then how that kind of worked into the, the show as part of um, that skit for the Christmas special. But what about yeah. some other personal experiences um, from growing up that you then wrote into the show where you felt well, you could connect I... to kids? Well, I wrote, I uh, I remember when I was a kid, and we'd hang out on the stoop on, in the summer. My mother would always make us go upstairs at a certain time, and I had a cousin who was allowed to stay out later with her family. Well, I was convinced. This was as a kid. I was convinced that the minute I left, they really started to have a lot of fun. <laughs> so one day. I prevailed, and my mother said, all right, you can stay out outside with them a little longer. And I did. And they didn't do anything that was fun. <laughs> they just went upstairs a few minutes later. So I was able, I wrote that, uh, uh, I decided to write that for Big Bird when uh, Susan and Gordon tell him to go to bed, and he doesn't want to, no matter what they tell him. And, he's, and he, he has an imagination that the circus comes to town as soon as he goes to bed. It was an imagination piece. <laughs> that sounds and familiar. The cir- <laughs> yeah, the circus does. In his imagination, the circus comes to town, but they let him stay up, and all they do is watch the news. <laughs> so so Big Bird says, oh, I, I'd rather go to sleep, and maybe I'll dream something more fun than this. So that was a moment that I, uh, that I uh, uh, put my life in. But I always, even when I wrote for Ernie and Bert, I remember we had a goal where children should know that uh, parents have many roles, that your mother could also be, well, not in those days. Your mother couldn't be a policewoman. But uh, uh, let's say your father could also be the policeman who could also be a teacher. And so I wrote a bit like that uh, where where Grover has a party for, he thinks, uh, several people, and it's just the one person who has many roles. And I remember I I made them Puerto Rican characters. There was a, a 
politician, and there was the grandmother, and uh, iconic uh, characters that could be made into Muppets. Mm. You know, since you retired, I think around the same time, um, there was news that Sesame Street was going to be um, carried on uh, HBO. Um, mm-hmm. That decision, I know in, in previous interviews, you think you've said that you're happy that the show is, is still on and still being broadcast um, and not put on a shelf and, and ended. Uh, but do you wonder about the reach? Are, are, is this show still reaching the kids that you uh, wanted it to see when you were on? Well, the it, it I was just as shocked as everybody else. I had left the show, and it was uh, I I I think that they have a lot of when it was just on PBS, uh, but I think Sesame Street has a lot of competition. There's so many shows out there, and the kids are watching the shows in so many different ways. Uh, 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 I I think I think it's. I think that their audience is broader now than the specific underserved kid that they used to serve when I started on the show. But also, um, besides that connection, I mean, um, and you know this very well, but just the research that was done um, on how Sesame Street really paved the way for children's television and and uh, changed the, I guess, the belief that kids, you know, their attention couldn't be um, grabbed for, you know, an hour. Um, Sesame Street helped change that, and it showed that the kids were actually learning something when they were watching. Yeah, yeah. It was the first show to, you know, to... to to make us all understand that kids were picking up information much earlier than they, than uh, anybody thought. And I'll say this: when I travel around, I'm teachers have come up to me and said that kids start school now and they don't know the alphabet. Why don't they know the alphabet? And I, I'm surprised. Or they'll say the kids can't. You know, the kids are having so much trouble reading. And uh, I, I, I'm. I'm flabbergasted because I thought we had already been through that. We taught the alphabet. We taught the sounds. Uh, actually, we had a little song that said, uh, you take a B, that's a B, and an I, G, Ig. You put it all together, and that spells big. That's B. You know, and, and the kids would sing, and they'd learn the the, the phonetic. It was phonetic reading. And... Um, all these adults always came up to me and say two things. I was raised on you, and you taught me to read. So I'm really surprised that so many kids are having trouble with reading today. What do you think of children's television today? I mean, lots of cartoons, lots of busy action happening all the time. I mean, <laughs> I think that we've become data-obsessed because of computers. And it's like if you can't test something, if you can't quantify it, people don't think it's important. Therefore, a lot of the children's shows are so curriculum-driven that there's no fun in them. There's no space for a child to sort of go into his imagination. For example, there used to be a film on Sesame Street. It was a gorilla in a cage. And the song was, Somebody come and play. Somebody come and play today. And, and that was it. And, you, you know, the gorilla would stare around and you'd hear this song in the background. Now, well, how do you test that? What are you teaching? You can't do that. You you can't test Lena Horne singing it. What are you going to ask the kids what they uh, uh, gathered from that uh, 
a segment like that because it's it's profound and it's many, 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 many things. So unfortunately, what I think about the kids' shows is if they can't test it, they don't put it on the put it up on the air. And so children are missing the opportunity to sort of think mm. think for themselves and, and put two and two together. Mm. I'm speaking with Sonia Manzano, a longtime Sesame Street actress. She's joining us from NPR Studios in Midtown Manhattan. She's written a book, a memoir, Becoming Maria, Love and Chaos in the South Bronx. And, and Sonia, I wanted to turn back to that memoir. Um, it's not easy reading. Obviously, lots of very private moments um, from your life growing up, um, from and it's interesting. I'm curious again about you know why you wanted to delve into that um, after being a very public figure for so long. Oh, why why did I do it? I don't know why I did it. <laughs> I I was inspired by um, Angela's ashes quite a bit, mm-hmm. and because it was funny. And tragic at the same time. And I, I've always loved that combination. I was turned on to uh, Charlie Chaplin also in that college, and mm-hmm. he did that very well. It was humorous but also f- full of pathos. And um, uh, I, I wanted to see if I could do the same. And I wanted to, you know, I, I wanted to face it. I, I didn't want to be scared of my past anymore. And I think writing it down gives you the opportunity to reflect and um, and look at it from a different perspective and be in control of it. Uh, I I wrote what I wanted to. It's been out for uh, you know some time. What has been the reaction um, from people have have written that have you know read your book? I know you said that when people see you, they see you as the character on Sesame Street, and they say, "Thank you, you brought comfort to me, even if I was dealing with a, a tough time as a child." So now that people right. know about your life as a child, what what kind of reaction did you get? Well, obviously, even more so, uh, uh, people who had difficult childhoods same I was in the same exact situation I mean some people that are lived that are uh, you know Scottish people might <laughs> who live in Scotland have said to me I, I was in the exact same situation so it's funny how universal um, uh, domestic violence is or people uh, living in tough times uh Many people live in tough times, and I think when one person who, who has, who's well known, says, "Look, this happened to me," people are happy to say, "Oh, wow, I'm not alone." Other people feel the same way, mm-hmm. and the other thing that surprises me is that so many adults have also said, uh, "Have been shocked that a child would be in this situation," and I have to say. Are you naive? They're still in this situation. Many children are in this situation of of uh, stress and chaos. Uh, and I'm surprised that more people don't know that or are surprised at that. Do people wonder that how did you end up in the career that you have and you're so successful when you when you had this tumultuous childhood? What do you say to them? I, I, uh, I think I have the... I don't know. It could be luck. I 
I always uh, tell educators that kids are born with their own skill sets. They're not just empty vessels that you inform and you pour information into them and then you test them on it. They come with their own set of skills. And I think I just was born with a certain set of of skills that include the capacity to see the obvious. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And, uh, you know, if I see that something was not working... I'm 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 quick to change and find another way. I saw my mother try to make something happen that was simply not going to happen, and I knew she wasn't going to live happily ever after by the time I was eight. And I didn't know why she kept pursuing a goal that was not. I it was clear to me was impossible. What happened with your parents' relationship? Well, I in in the book I uh, uh, I. Uh, I I was so afraid for her physical well-being that I finally and I I think I convinced her them to separate and and here's the thing when I had to write it I was estranged from my father I went back to connect with him to see to talk I always talked with my mother we were very, we were close but I had to go back to my father to see and he said oh your mother I loved her. I still love her. <laughs> and what went on between us has nothing to had nothing to do with you. Hmm. So, which brings me to another point. Adults think that because you're little and you're not being hit or you're uh you're being fed that you're not reacting or taking in your environment. Uh, it was something I shared with uh, Justice uh, Sotomayor as well because when she was diagnosed with uh, diabetes, she says, and at that time it was a death sentence, she said, you know, the adults would talk about it like I wasn't in the room and wasn't understanding what their fears were. And I thought it was interesting that my father just kind of was completely surprised that any of this has had affected us, uh, the children, all of this violence. Uh, So so that's one thing. And then also my siblings, when I described when they read the book and they remembered the same incidences differently or with different emotional impact. Sometimes it was like we had different parents. So when people say, gee, I'm going to write my memoir, will my siblings get angry? I'll say no. They'll totally experience the world you lived in differently than you. Hmm. So a life is made up of the memories we remember and how we remember them, not the events, I would say. I'm speaking with Sonia Manzano, Maria, on Sesame Street for 44 years. She's an author of children's books and a memoir that we've been talking about, Becoming Maria, Love and Chaos in the South Bronx. She joins us today from NPR Studios in Midtown Manhattan. And we're going to take a short break. Be back in just a little bit. This is where we live. Or important like a mountain or tall like a tree. When green is all there is to be. It could make you wonder why, but why wonder, why wonder, I'm green and it'll do fine and it's beautiful 
and I think it's what I want to be. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Coming up Monday, post-election hate crimes and incidents of intimidation and harassment have been reported in states across the nation, including here in Connecticut. On the next Where We Live, we talk about this wave of hate, and we hear how communities are responding. Now, Where We Live is looking for your questions. We want to hear from you. Here's a topic we're going to dive into in an upcoming show. What have you always wanted to know about how your town government works? We want to know what you're curious about. You can enter your question at our website, WMPR.org. Just look for Ask WMPR, and we'll be in touch with you if we find an answer to your question. Now, today we're talking with a beloved TV character from our childhood, Maria from Sesame Street. She's actually Sonia Manzano. She played Maria for 44 years, and she retired last year. Later on, she's going to be in Hartford uh, speaking at an event put on by the nonprofit The Village in Hartford uh, to benefit programs for at-risk girls and women. And Sonia, I mentioned again that um, you know it's been a year uh, since you've retired. And what is your focus now? Well, I uh, have a s- several books in the works with Scholastic, uh, uh, the publishing house uh, that published uh, my memoir. And um, I continue to uh, to give talks and speeches wherever I can. Um, and uh, I will continue to devote myself to helping uh, the young uh, wherever I can. Uh, as as I said, you don't have to uh, give them all the answers. Actually, we don't have all the answers, <laughs> so we couldn't give it to them if we wanted to. But uh, I think that if you just point the kid in the right direction, that you know they'll take it the rest of the way. Uh, so I hope to do more of that. Now I mentioned you've also written some children's books. Tell me about those books. Oh, I wrote uh, my first book was. Uh, 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 no dogs allowed, and that was based on a. They're all little memoirettes, as I said. Mm-hmm. I was uh, uh, inspired to write memoirs, and I the picture book was uh, No Dogs Allowed, and uh, b- based on a true story. We used to go to Lake Welch as a child. When this was the fun, uh, fun parts of my childhood, and we never just went as a family. It was a caravan, and we would go for the whole day, and we would take guitars, and my mother would make rice and beans and roast pork, and and uh, it was a whole, uh, we were like gypsies. Five cars, we'd always get lost. Nobody could speak English, and one day, uh, somebody who went with us had a dog, and after all of this preparation, we'd leave at dawn, we got to the Lake Welch, and no dogs were allowed. Well, <laughs> the truth of it was the people had to return, and we were all very sad about that. So I wrote a picture book, but it has a happy ending in the picture book, and I have uh, all of the funny, uh, uh, iconic Puerto Rican characters in it, the grocery store owner who brings a deli with him, a deli counter. My cousin Carmen, who actually did used to bring her hair curlers to the beach so she could set her hair on curlers and look beautiful when (laughs) we hit the block at the end of the day. So I was able to uh, resurrect a lot of those characters. And then I wrote a box full of kittens, which 
is also based on a true story. I remember uh, I had to stay with an aunt who was nine months pregnant, and she didn't have a phone. And my mother said, stay with her in case anything happens. You'll come run and get me. Well, in my fantasy, something did happen, and I saved the day, and I thought, I'll get a parade. Uh, I'll be a big hero. It, so in reality, nothing happened. But I thought I'd write a picture book where... Uh, Something does happen, and the little girl does get to save the day, or she thinks. Uh, so that was another picture book based on. And then the third one, Miracle on 133rd Street, had to do with a Christmas a Christmas story that uh, uh, everybody's in strife in the neighborhood. But the aroma of a Christmas roast pork makes everybody get into the Christmas spirit. <laughs> So even in your writing for children, you're thinking about ways, books that will appeal to all children from many different uh, backgrounds. Yes, yes, yes. You can't uh, you can't uh, uh, cram uh, a book down a kid's throat because it's going to be good for them or because you want them to accept diversity in their lives. You have to give them a nice, good, juicy story that they can relate to that a lot of people feel and uh and if i could add we are always concerned about making kids be nice to each other uh but we can't just tell them to do that i think the way to do that is to make put them in write stories that makes puts them in the other guy's shoes <laughs> so that they get a sense about how another person lives you know you mentioned earlier um you know we were talking about just back when you were going to college at CMU, that the world was your friend back then. And now we're looking at today in 2016, a lot of people talking about how divided our nation has become. Uh, issues of equality and opportunity are now front and center. What are your thoughts on uh, where we are going? I'm flabbergasted. I can't, you know, we were going to close the education gap at Sesame Street, and we were going to mm-hmm. eradicate racism. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we really had... Uh, those high ideals. And I think this this uh, uh, recent uh, presidential election has absolutely turned everything upside down. Uh, things were said during this campaign that would have gotten me sent to the principal's office. My mother would have had to come in. Every ideal of um, uh, that I was raised in, that I was raised with, I remember doing the Pledge of Allegiance and feeling my heart swell with pride and patriotism, thinking this was the best country with the most compassionate people. Uh, even as I felt my parents were being marginalized and taken and exploited, even as I felt the teachers disdain for me because I was brown and poor, mm-hmm. I still felt patriotic and like this was the best I I I cannot believe that we have given license to such bigotry. Maybe it was hidden there all the time, but now it's like it's out in the open and it's okay to do that and it's okay to uh uh make fun of people and it's okay to exclude people and it's it's unbelievable to me. Uh, there, somebody put on my Facebook page. I guess uh, 
I guess the politicians didn't watch the cooperation bits on on, on Sesame Street. <laughs> and it did make me laugh. We used to sort of talk about cooperation a lot. Now cooperation and compromise is seen as an act of weakness. Compassion used to be a good trait. Now it's seen as a as a sign of, of weakness as well. I'm I'm very scared for us. Mm-hmm. Makes you want to start watching the reruns of Sesame Street on PBS. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, maybe uh, those, uh, some of those lessons will, uh, will, uh, will come through stronger. Obviously, uh, our, I mean, I think the whole world is kind of uh, surprised at uh, uh, Americans and what we stand for has, mm-hmm. is, is being turned around in such, in such a strange way. Before we go, Sonia, I wanted to talk about your legacy. We know that Sesame Street changed the landscape for, for children's television, uh, for ways to teach our, our children um, many different things. And when you look back, what do you, what do you see your legacy as? I think uh, uh, being one of the first Latins on television at a time when uh, – we were completely uh, invisible mm. to America. And, uh, uh, you know, I think we have to be even more prominent in the media. I want to thank Sonia Manzano. She was Maria on Sesame Street for 44 years, retired last year, an author of children's books, a memoir called Becoming Maria, Love and Chaos in the South Bronx. She'll be in Hartford later to speak at the village's Girl Within Luncheon to benefit programs again to help at-risk girls and women. Sonia, so nice to speak with you. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, Lucy. Our show is produced by Lydia Brown and Jeff Tyson. Our technical producer is Kyone Wolf. WNPR's executive producer is Katie Tolarski. You can continue this conversation on our website, wnpr.org slash where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks for listening and have a great weekend.